Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Those of you who are new and you braved the snow this morning, well done. So glad you're here with us. My name is Rob, and I'm lead pastor here at Crosspoint, and I'd love to get a chance to get to know you a little bit. We are uh, in a series, we're actually in the fourth week of a series called Skeptics Welcome, and uh, we're looking at some of the questions, maybe some of the objections that a number of people would have to uh, the Christian faith, and, and these not are, are not just objections or questions that uh, those outside the Christian faith have, they're actually questions that those inside the Christian faith have, and uh, and we're okay with that here at Crosspoint. We think it's okay not to be okay. We think it's okay to, to question and to learn and to grow and to investigate and follow the evidence where it leads. So uh, that's what this series is, is all about. And uh, we're hoping that as we walk through and explore these questions together, that this will be helpful to you in, in your faith journey. Uh, we, we've kind of investigated a, a few questions in the beginning. Uh, week number one we looked at, is belief in God reasonable? Uh, week two, we asked the question, is it arrogant? To believe in one truth, and uh, and then last week we looked at how can a how can a good God allow suffering, and uh, if you weren't here, if you didn't have a chance to hear those, you can go online to our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca, and uh, you can watch it there. You can go to our YouTube channel, or you could download the podcast and uh, listen to it while you drive, because you're going to be driving a lot slower now for the next uh, number of months, uh, perhaps six or seven. So. Well, today we are going to be looking at the question, is Jesus Christ just a myth or a legend? And this is, in fact, a a long-standing objection. This is not something that is new, but it is actually something that's really become popularized in the last two decades. Um, And essentially what, what this objection is saying is that there's no real historical Jesus, that the Jesus that Christians worship today is essentially a an embellished or a made-up version of Jesus. Um, and there really, there's two slightly nuanced versions of this. On the one hand, there's the Jesus uh, is a legend. And on the other hand, there's the idea that Jesus is a myth and the Christ myth. And I want to talk about each of those first this morning as we dive into this topic together um, because they are similar but slightly nuanced differences. So I'm going to talk about each of those. But l- let me talk about the first one, uh, the idea that Jesus is a legend. Um, so essentially, the big idea behind this is, is, is that Jesus was a legend that kind of grew over a period of time. Uh, this is often the view that you might hear on the street. This is the view that, uh, for those of you who are in college or in university, you might hear on university campuses. If you take a Religion 101 course or an anthropology course, this might be the, the, the general idea that you will hear regarding the person of Jesus. Um, it goes something like this. So, so the legend of Jesus began as these stories. Uh, in the first century, and as these stories were shared, they began to grow, and they began to develop. Um, they were basically passed on to various small churches who lived throughout the Roman Empire, and these churches lived in isolation, and as they lived in isolation, these stories began to grow in these isolated places, and of course, they began to take on different shapes and forms based on the needs of those local communities, those religious-based communities, and then at some point, um, 
they grew and took shape and uh, eventually evolved into these legendary accounts of Jesus. So kind of like the game Telephone. I don't know if you guys remember the game Telephone. You know, you line a bunch of people up. And you say something to the person on one end, and then they share it to the next person, and the next person, and the next person, and the next person. And then when you get to the end, what's shared at the end is radically different from what's actually shared at the beginning, right? So you start with, like, green eggs of ham, uh, green eggs and ham, right? And you get to the end, and it's like, eat the legs off of Stan, right? So, and, and that's the idea behind this idea of Jesus growing as a legend, is, is that through process of time, as it was shared, the story changed, it grew, and it evolved into this legendary Jesus. Uh, and they became so embellished... And so imagine that they bear little resemblance to the true and historical Jesus. Um, and so the be- Jesus of the Bible that we read today is essentially legendary. It's not the actual real Jesus that we may have um, uncovered. Now, uh, we're going to come back to this legendary concept a little bit later. But let me talk about the Christ myth. Because the Christ myth is similar, like I said, but it's, it's got nuanced differences. The Christ myth basically says that Jesus was a, a mythological character. And basically, he was an amalgamation of several other mythological godmen or saviors from ancient times. So if you, and it's interesting, if you take Jesus and you put him side by side next to these other figures from ancient mythology, you can actually see the precise parallels. So characters like Horus, Mithras, uh, Dionysus, um, and essentially what they're saying is Christianity just kind of borrowed from all of these characters, put them in a bowl, Mixed it up, and out came Jesus, okay, to simplify um, the, the, the position. And, of course, there, there have actually been numerous books and films on this uh, in the past two decades in popular culture. The Christ Conspiracy is one of them. That's one of the most popular. Uh, the Pagan Christ by Tom Harper, which, in fact, was Canada's best-selling book in 2004. Uh, some of you, maybe on college campuses or among your friends, have uh, heard of Zeitgeist, the movie, or... Um, Religulous, which is the Bill Mayer. That clip we showed today was from his, from his little short film. Uh, so these are, this is a, a popularized understanding of Jesus, trying to make sense of who he was by comparing him to the different mythologies from history. And I'd love to go on a deep dive analysis of the Christ myth, uh, but I can only make a few quick points on it this morning. And I, and I, I, don't, I don't want you to capture this um, as, I, as I explain this. So what, what do we say about the Christ myth? First of all, um, it's interesting is that those who write about the Christ myth rarely look at the primary materials of history. So what they mostly look at are secondary materials. So primary materials are act, the actual first sources, like the biblical documents and what they actually say, or the ancient materials on Horus or Dionysus and what it actually says. If you read their material in their books, they actually quote secondary sources and the secondary sources that they most often quote are their friends, the other people who are writing about the exact same topic. So you look at the footnote, you look at the bibliography. So imagine this, you're in high school and you have to uh, write, or no, in college, and you have to write a paper on the catcher in the rye, okay? And uh, you write this paper on catcher in the rye, but in the entire paper, never once do you quote catcher in the rye. As a matter of fact, you've never even read catcher in the rye. The only thing that you're actually quoting are your friends in college who are writing their college papers in sweatpants in their basements, okay, and, and you're quoting them, and you're quoting each other, and you hand it into your college professor. What will you get on that paper? You will get an F, because you've never actually read or even cited or quoted Catcher in the Rye. So it's, it's a similar type of parallel. Um, and because of this, okay, secondarily, because of this, 
they get the facts wrong. They get the facts wrong not only about Christianity and what Christians actually believe and actually what the biblical account says, but they actually get the accounts wrong of what the ancient mythologies actually believe because they don't actually go to the first sources. Um, so in the end, you take uh, a bad account here and you put a bad account here and you put them beside each other and you can draw a parallel because you're making it fit what you want it to say at the end of the day. So it's basically shoddy scholarship done by non-experts and they're making money selling popular books, which essentially are conspiracy theories. And who doesn't like a good conspiracy theory, right? It sells books at the end of the day. My encouragement is, is, is to not base your life on a conspiracy theory. Um, and my encouragement is to actually look at the primary sources, the first sources. What did the first sources actually say? And then make a good scholarly deduction based on that information. Remember, facts are friends. Facts are friends. Um, by the way, speaking of getting facts wrong, the clip we just watched with Bill Mayer was from the book Religulous, right? Did you notice the statistic that he cited there in the paper? Here's what it says. It says, 93% of scientists from the National Academy of Scientists are atheists. Did anyone notice that? Did you find that startling? I read that and I thought, well, I'm not so sure about that. That seems pretty high. That seems really, really high. So I looked it up. Um, the number of atheists at NAS are, are not even close to being that high. It, it turns out actually the, the study that they were actually citing was a very poor, poor study. Questions were, were um, worded terribly. Uh, if it was uh, put under scholarly review, it probably would never have been cited as an actual study. Um, the questions in it were not well written. And, and the other thing was that the questions that it was asking was just asking the question, do you believe in a personal God? So it wasn't even asking, do you believe in a God? So among that 93%, it would have included theists and deists at the end of the day. Okay, so the number wasn't even close. And in fact, there was a better study that was written in 2009 by Pew Research, and uh, they conducted the same survey, and they discovered that 51% of the scientists in the American Association for the Advancement of Science believe in a deity or a higher power. So, and that's a well-conducted study. So again, at the end of the day, it's, it's important that we watch these shows, what we read online, what you're scrolling through on Facebook. Here's the principle. Facts are friends. Look at the primary sources. Don't check your brains at the door and just assume because somebody cites it in a movie and because they're you know, a good stand-up comedian making lots of money online, prime time, that what they're saying is actually true. And I would say that for our own camp as well. I'm very, very careful that if I just, just kind of read something and I throw it out before you, I'm very, very careful. Let's look at the primary sources. And today, we're going to do that. We're going to look at some primary sources. And we're going to apply good reason to the evidence. Again, if you're just with us, this is a thinking series. We're inviting you to think. We don't always get this heady into it. But we think it's important that the, the stakes are really high for what we believe. Really, really high for what we believe. Because what we believe as followers of Jesus could cost you. Imagine that. It could actually cost you your whole life. So wouldn't you want to know that you know what you believe? And that's why we're doing this series. So I invite you to think with me today. Today we're going to get into some facts, some information, okay? But uh, I invite you to go along uh, the journey. Um, so how do we respond to this objection? Well, I, I think the starting point is to look at what the Bible, the claim that the Bible actually makes about Jesus. Does the Bible claim to be a book of myths or legends? Does it claim that Jesus is a myth or a legend? That's a good question. So 
what you'll find as you read the Bible is that it actually claims to be a book of actual events, eyewitness accounts, and historical um, information. So let me give you an example. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Here's what the good Dr. Luke says. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. What's Luke doing here? Luke is beginning his gospel. He's telling the story of Jesus and the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and all of that. And this is how he starts it. So he says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. By the way, if anyone... You know, next child dedication is someone's baby is Theophilus. High fives on that, okay? Because um, I will say, oh, most excellent Theophilus. Okay, uh, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So the Gospel of Luke was well, written by Luke, right? And he's claiming to provide carefully investigated, recorded, and ordered accounts of what? Of eyewitnesses. And this isn't the only time in the New Testament you'll find this. So there are other places. The Apostle Peter. Okay, he's a companion of the disciple of Jesus. He saw everything firsthand. Death, resurrection, glorification. Here's what he says, for 2 Peter 1.16. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised stories. Did you catch that? Cleverly devised stories. When we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The apostle John, another disciple of Jesus. First-hand account. Uh, speaking from the perspective of an eyewitness, here's what he says. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Okay, he's saying, I'm, I'm giving you just a little bit, the, the trailer here. You're not getting the full movie because I don't have time, but here it is. And then there's the apostle Paul, who was not a disciple of Jesus, became a disciple and an apostle of Jesus later on but met the, res uh, the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, okay? And here's what he writes. And list, look at the list of a number of people who are eyewitnesses to the resurrection that he's listing here. He says, what I received, I passed on to you as first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, so he's, he's, he's spelling out these accounts. These are the accounts, okay? And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that, he appeared to be more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Okay, that's Jesus' brother. Imagine following your brother as the son of God. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So Paul's saying, okay, listen, these are the accounts of eyewitnesses. This, this is not just the accounts. Uh, 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 these are not just made-up stories. That seems to be what they're saying. Um, I, I remember uh, one, of my, one of my favorite episodes from the simpsons um love the simpsons uh and this one is like way way back when okay some of you weren't even born yet when this episode came out okay but but homer homer simpson skips church and he has the best day of his life okay and he gets into all sorts of trouble while he's at home and at the end of the day his house burns down okay and the person who saves him is none other than his christian neighbor ned flanders who does a backflip out of his window lands on a mattress runs into the house saves homer simpson from the flames okay um, and at the end of the story, okay, the, the claims agent shows up. The insurance claims agent shows up from the total disaster insurance agency. And he asks Homer the question, so any valuables in the house, right? And then Homer starts just kind of shamelessly lying about everything that he owns. He says, well, there's the Picasso, there's my collection of classic cars, right? And then the agent just cuts him off right away. And the agent says to him, no, no, sorry, sir. 
this policy only covers actual losses, not made up stuff. To which Homer replies, of course, Homer, well, that's just great. The reason why I find that interesting is that this is the claim of the New Testament about Jesus. We're covering actual events here, not just made up stuff. And if the New Testament claims to provide historical eyewitness accounts, essentially you can only come up with two conclusions. Number one, the New Testament's actually lying in all that it presents. Or number two, these are events that actually happened. So how do we, how do we square with these claims, right? What do, we, what do we do with them? Which is it? And can I suggest four responses to you this morning for your consideration? Four responses for you to consider. Here's the first one. There was an historical Jesus. There was a historical Jesus. Uh, and this is pretty much indisputed by most serious biblical scholars. And it includes liberal scholars, atheistic scholars, and agnostic biblical scholars. Uh, even Bart Ehrman, who's like one of the most notorious biblical agnostic scholars, will say, yes, there was a historical Jesus. And not just from the New Testament accounts, which are historical documents, although we choose not to see them as such in our, in our culture, okay, but... There are sources. In fact, there are 10 of them. 10, at least 10 first century historians and writers outside of the Bible who mention Jesus by name. I want to give you a couple examples this morning. First of all, Tacitus. Tacitus is the Roman orator and he's a writer who lived during the first century. Here's what he writes. Next slide. All right, it's not up there. Oh, okay. Tacitus is lost in the pages of history. Here's what Tacitus says. He says, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations. He's talking about Christians here. Called Christians by the populace. Christus, who is Christ, for whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate. That's a historical document. First century. Here's another one. Josephus, first century Jewish Roman scholar. Here's what he writes. He says, about this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, uh, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrote surprising feats. He was the Christ. And when Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. This is Josephus. This is first century. He is not a Christ follower. He is a Jewish scholar. And he writes about Jesus as a historical figure. Um, so these are not Christian writers. And first of all, they affirm that Jesus was an historical figure. And second, they actually affirm some of the claims about Jesus that the Bible makes about Jesus. Okay, so, so the fact that this was necessarily uh, just made up stuff, is, it, it's becoming a little skeptical. But even if, here's the thing, is even if Jesus was an historical character, that doesn't mean that the stories that weren't embellished or became legends. Okay, that's not what I'm arguing here. All I'm saying is it is hard to ignore the evidence that Jesus was an actual historical figure. And maybe they grew as legends over hundreds of years, is what people would argue, um, until they were put into canonical form in the time of Constantine. So we need to look at that question then. Was it a, was it a legend then that grew beyond this, beyond the first century? So here's a second response for your consideration this morning, is that the writer's timeline the writers of the New Testament, their timeline was near to the life of Jesus, was near. As it turns out, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written within 40 to 60 years 
of the life of Jesus. They were written a little bit later on. But the letters of Paul were written within 15 to 25 years of the life of Jesus. Okay, so you've got to think about the timeline here. And the reason why that's important uh, is because these letters were circulating in the churches at the same time that all of the eyewitnesses were still alive. Okay, and that's really, really important because here's the thing is when, when Paul wrote his letters and when the Gospels were, were, were written, they were intended to be these public documents that were sent out to local churches. So Paul sent his letters to churches, the Gospels were sent and they circulated, and when churches gathered and met together, they didn't have social media, they didn't have email, they didn't have telephone, they didn't have television. The way that they communicated is they would take these letters in a public forum and they would read them. That was the normal practice for all of the culture back in that day. That's what they did. So these, these letters would have been read, read in public for everybody to hear. Here's the thing. If these claims that they were making were false, if they were false, the eyewitnesses would have spoken up. The eyewitnesses would have actually had the privilege to say something in a public forum. And what's interesting is this is why you actually find the names of the eyewitnesses intentionally written down in the Gospels and letters. So when these were circulated and they were presented before these communities, some of the eyewitnesses would have been in the crowd. They would have been nodding their heads. And they'd say, yeah, I remember when that happened. Yeah, that's, that's exactly how it would have been written. People could talk about them. They could confirm these facts or they could deny them. Uh, the, the biblical scholar Richard Baucom, he wrote a great book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And this is essentially his argument is that sometimes the gospel writers actually named the eyewitnesses within the text to help confirm the stories so that you could actually go to the eyewitnesses and ask them, did this happen? Let me give you an example. Mark chapter 15 and verse 21. Here's an interesting story. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. You ask the question, well, who carried the cross? Well, it was Simon, not Simon Peter. Simon, you know, the father of Alexander and Rufus. He was there. Go and ask him. He'll confirm the story. Uh, here's another example, John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And then there's this little addendum, okay? Just in case you missed it, the servant's name was Malchus, right? Did this happen? Did, did they cut off Malchus's ear? Go and ask him. Make sure you stand on the right side because he's missing an ear. But ask him the question, Malchus, did you get your ear cut off? And he'll say, yes, yes, I had my ear cut off. That's why it's inserted in the text. The point is that it would have been very difficult for Christianity to spread if these stories were just legends. The eyewitness accounts would not have allowed for it. This is why those names are just kind of randomly inserted in different places throughout the Gospels. Uh, they would have argued with you, or they would have credited you, or discredited you. So that's the that's second consideration. Here's the third response. The details don't match fiction. The details don't match fiction. Now, wh when you read the Gospels in the New Testament, you will find all sorts of details. You'll find all sorts of dialogue. And, and these actually read like an eyewitness account. They don't read like a work of fiction. For example, in Mark chapter 4 and verse 38, you discover that Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat. In John 21, you, you read that Peter jumped out of the boat, he swam towards shore, and then there was this miraculous catch of fish, and they pulled in all the nets, and then it says they found 153 fish. 
in, 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 in the net. And the question you have to ask is, is simply this. Why did the gospel writers capture these intricate details? What is the point of capturing that they, the reality that they captured 153 fish? What does that matter? And you might think, well, that's not much of an argument. I mean, I read lots of fiction today. And there are lots of details in the fiction I read today. And you're right. There is lots of details in the fiction that we read today. But here's what's different. First of all, the fiction that you and I read today is a recent development in human history. The fiction that we read today evolved or began evolving perhaps 300 years ago. Prior to that, there was no intricate works of fiction in human history. And it's only, um, and, and there were no fiction novels in the ancient world. If you go back to the time of Jesus, you will, you will find no evidence of any fiction novels existing. But here's what else is different. In fiction, the reason why you add details in fiction is to create an aura of realism. You're trying to make the story come alive with the details. But if you are a fiction writer, and believe me, I've tried to write fiction and failed many times. Read a lot of books on fiction writing. One day, I will create a pop-up book. I don't know. <laughs> but if you are a fiction writer, you only include details that are relevant to the story. You don't use uh, irrelevant or random details. That is actually bad fiction. Uh, let me give you an example. Here's a bit of fiction that I wrote, and you can just follow along with the story. Let's put up the gloomy scene. There it is. Thank you. Background. The stalker went through the night like a hunting cat. Knife in hand, he crept into the neighbor's backyard and onto their deck. His breathing was slow, rehearsed. His ears were attuned to the sounds of the night, and he slowly cut the screen in the sliding door. He preferred chocolate ice cream to vanilla. <laughs> he had 25 cents in his back pocket and a wart at the base of his left thumb. And when he was six, his family bought him a BMX bicycle. He crept through the screen door. Shall I continue? <laughs> Random, useless information does not make for good fiction. Fiction writers only insert details that are relevant to the plot or character development. And, and the challenge with, with calling the Gospels fiction is, is they actually don't read like good fiction. Why does it matter that Jesus slept on a cushion? Why does it matter that they brought in 153 fish? It doesn't matter. So why are the details in there? It's because these are the details that are retained in the eyewitnesses' memories. And it's why seemingly unimportant details were tracked and written down. And this is probably a more plausible explanation of why they're there. Uh, C.S. Lewis was well known for his books, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. You may have seen the movies as well. He wrote many great apologetic works like Mere Christianity. You would have read those as well. Um, as it turns out, that wasn't his primary area of study. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a world-class literary critic. He was an, he was an Oxford professor. He, he taught at Cambridge, and that was primarily what he taught about was ancient literature. And when C.S. Lewis, he came to Christ later in life, um, but when he read the Gospels, this is what he noted about the Gospels. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel test, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without no pre known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated 
the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. I want you to consider that it's, it's really difficult to demonstrate that these are works of fiction um, when they were written thousands of years before any major works of fictions had actually been written. And here's the fourth consideration, fourth response this morning, is that the content actually works against the movement. The content works against the movement. Often people would say that the reason why these legends were written was to kind of prop up the early church's leaders, that the stories helped consolidate their powers, it helped you know, kind of create momentum for the movement, and so that way they could gain control over the others. That in the time of Constantine, these legends were fashioned together, basically, to give power to the church over the masses, okay? If you really read the content of the Bible, if you really read the New Testament with objective lenses, you will discover that it does precisely the opposite. The bottom line is, if Scripture was trying to convince outsiders and make a case for their power, they did a pretty lousy job of it. And let me explain why. Let me give you some examples. First, having the founder of the, mo of the movement, the Christian movement, crucified is a non-starter. The bottom line, if, if, if Scripture was trying to convince outsiders and make a case uh, for Jesus, um, most people automatically suspected that a crucified person was a criminal. So why on earth would the Gospels capture this detail? There's probably a better way for Jesus to have died than to have had him crucified. Second, the Garden of Gethsemane doesn't, do a good picture of painting, uh, doesn't paint a good picture of the founder. Because remember, what did Jesus say in the garden? If it's possible, let this cup pass for me. In other words, come on, there's got to be a detour around the cross. There's got to be a better way. Is there a way? Um, that's not propping up your leader to be an extraordinary hero. Why would anybody record the account of Jesus in the garden in this way? Here's another one. Why would Jesus cry out on the cross asking God why he had forsaken him? Why would you, why would you write that down? Why would you record that? Wouldn't that just kind of create confusion for everybody? This, this record of Jesus crying out to God. And those are details about Jesus, right? But there's also details about his followers, which don't make a lot of sense. Why would the writers record the first witnesses of the resurrection to be women? Keep in mind that this was a culture, this was a society where women were given such low status in the culture that their testimony wasn't even admissible in court. Why would you set them up as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus? That just doesn't make sense any sense whatsoever you're working against yourself here's another example that the first leaders of this church of this christian movement the disciples i mean these first leaders are depicted as bumblers they were not your a-list candidate they were petty they were jealous they were slow to remember they were rash and ultimately at the end of the day they were cowards who walked away from jesus when the going got tough what kind of leaders are those if they were to lead the movement, wouldn't it be better? If you were to find candidates to lead the movement, wouldn't you find heroes? Wouldn't you find people of extraordinary capability and competency rather than these bumblers? So if these stories were intended to consolidate power towards the Christian leaders in the time of Constantine, they did a terrible job of it. They really could have written something better, something more, more epic. The content actually works against the movement, not for it. See, the real story is that the early church was persecuted by the Jews and the Roman Empire. They worshiped Jesus as the resurrected Son of God. They refused to bow down to the empire's idols, and uh, they would not compromise their beliefs. And was, this is undisputed in history, okay? 
And as a result of that, persecution against them began to grow. At first, they were mocked and they were beaten. They were disenfranchised. They were imprisoned. They were marginalized in society. But things then began to escalate. They began to be murdered for their beliefs. They were thrown to the lions. They were sawn in half. They were stretched into pieces. They were dipped in oil, lit on fire, and put on poles, uh, put on poles in the emperor's garden to light his garden party. This is how tr Christians were treated in the early centuries. And yet under this persecution, Christianity grew from a handful of people at the time of Jesus to over 33 million people in just 350 years. By 400 AD, 56% of the Roman Empire were Christians. How do we account for this? How do we account for this rapid growth even in the midst of persecution? Why is it that so many people were willing to die for their faith? And among those who died were the disciples, the original apostles. Of them, of the, of the 12, uh, one, of course, was replaced. But of those 12, all of them were martyred for their faith, with the exception of one, who was John the Beloved, who lived to a ripe old age. They gained nothing from being part of this movement. The movement did not make them popular. It did not make them wealthy. It only led them into a life of humiliation and hardship and ultimately, at the end, death. And yet, for some reason, they continued to tell the story about a crucified and resurrected Christ. And what Christians argue is that the most reasonable explanation is they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. They'd seen Jesus perform miracles. They'd walked with him. They'd listened to him. They watched him die on a cross, pleading mercy over his enemies. They saw him raised up again from the dead. They saw him ascend into heaven. And I think when we consider all of this, when we consider the historical information, and if we follow the evidence where it leads, we have to ask the question, the personal question. Would you die for a legend? And would you die for a myth? And so our question today is just simply that, is was Jesus a myth? Was Jesus a, a, a legend? The Christ myth is completely unsustainable. I mean, 99% uh, of legitimate tenured scholars would agree with the Christ myth that is not even on the radar of being tenable, okay? The idea that Jesus was a legend is also very difficult to maintain, as we've talked about this morning. So what do we do with those extra biblical accounts that said Jesus was a historical person? We, you know, what do we do with the eyewitness accounts? What do we do with the historical reality of persecution and Christians willing to, to stand up in the face of persecution? What do we do with all that? And my, my encouragement for each and every one of us this morning is to look at the evidence and follow the evidence ultimately where it leads. And what we are suggesting to you this morning, if you are seeking and you're, you're, you're wondering and you have doubts, what we're suggesting is that it leads to an actual historical Jesus who's crucified and dead and buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the grave. And he promises that all who, who follow him can begin again. That as we surrender our lives to him, we can experience his life, his complete new life, abundant, eternal life. And by surrendering our lives and putting our trust in him, he will, he will save us. And we'll start again. So if you're investigating this morning, can I just ask you this, to consider this question? Just consider this. What if it is true? What if it's true? You see, Jesus revealed that he was the Son of God. And C.S. Lewis says at the end of the day, if this is true, you really have three options. If you consider, what do I do with Jesus? C.S. Lewis would say he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. 
And he would ask the question, well, if he's a liar, then, then how can people say that Jesus was the, the greatest moral teacher who ever lived if he was a liar? But on the other hand, you might have the question, well, maybe he was a lunatic, right? And C.S. Lewis would then say, well, if he was a lunatic, well, then how can, how can it be that Jesus could construct such healing and transformative teachings? And how is it that, that, that by following and obeying and living in the teachings of Jesus, you can actually move towards psychological health? How could that be constructed by a lunatic? So he says, if he's not a liar and if he's not a lunatic, what do we do with Jesus? Who was he? Mishka Asayas is a music journalist, and he wrote the book Bono on Bono, based by his interviews on the rock star. And uh, Bono, if you know from U2, confesses to be a follower of Christ. And uh, Mishka, in one of his interviews with Bono, asks him this question. He says, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, isn't that far-fetched? And I know I've shared this with you before, but I think it bears repeating today because I love Bono's response. It's such a great response. Here's what he says. He says, no, it's, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. Had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word because, you know, we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, but actually I am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what, what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. Now, just because Bono says it doesn't make it so. I mean, he's not a biblical scholar, but he does help illustrate the point. You can't say that Jesus was a liar or he was a lunatic. They crucified him because of his declaration to be the son of God. And so if you're investigating Christianity this morning, I just want you to consider, what, what if it's true? Wouldn't it be worth investigating deeper? You know, we're all on a, on a journey of discovery, and here at Crosspoint, we, we welcome you into that journey no matter where you're at on that continuum, and we say, come along with us, learn with us, discover with us, grow with us. It's okay not to be okay, and we're willing to walk that journey with you. And I, listen, this, like I said earlier, the stakes are high behind this question, so I kind of encourage you, if you're still investigating, sitting on the fence, We've got some great resources that are provided in your bulletin insert. I encourage you to look at those, to probe deeper, because this is a really, really important question, and we want you to, to begin to wrestle with this question more deeply. And I say this, for followers of Jesus this morning, Jesus was more than just a name. We believe that he was the living, resurrected son of God. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And because of that, we worship him. 
And the implications of this truth we understand to be far-reaching. The implications of this truth should come to bear on every aspect of our lives. And I hope and I pray that that's true for you this morning. I'm going to invite the band to come and I invite you to pray with me. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you care enough about us that you don't leave us in the dark. And we thank you that uh, your heart and your posture towards us is one of grace and you're reaching out to us. I pray we would all discover that this morning. Uh, every heart that's, that's seeking would find you. We thank you that's a promise in your word. We knock, the door will be open, seek, you will find. And so we come seeking and knocking and asking this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the resurrection. Thank you for the new life in Christ. Thank you for your great name that uh, echoes throughout history. We worship you now. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.